Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. The past few months or so, I've started to feel more clueless than ever when it comes to all things crypto. It seems like this force is changing the world at such speed that it's foolish not to try and educate yourself about this topic. So I went and sought out a conversation with someone who knows a lot about it. I've been following James Wang on Twitter for a while. He recently left his job at ARK Invest to focus on crypto full time. He's super knowledgeable and makes the complex really easy to understand, which is particularly valuable when it comes to something like this. I learned a lot speaking to James and I think you will too by listening. If you want to get a better understanding of blockchain, crypto, Ethereum, NFTs, DeFi and much more, then this is a very good place to start please hit subscribe to stay up to date with the podcast. Enjoy. Hello, James, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Of course, Nathan. Thanks for having me. So as always, we'll dive straight in uh, by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? You know, it's such a such a big question. And, and I think anyone who is curious and wants to see the world progress must have many different answers. And I have many different answers. But maybe at this very moment in time, um, uh, my focus is just uh, on all the cool things that's happening with crypto and blockchain technologies right now. And uh, I'm just trying to help people understand it a bit better because it is a very complex technology. So uh, through humor and through writing and maybe some memes, I try to kind of expose that to the world. That's very narrowly. And, and this, I'm sure, will pass because there's just so many stuff, so much stuff that's happening in the world that's interesting. But maybe zooming out more broadly, um, I mean, we live in absolutely the zenith of human civilization. Uh, I think there is, it's, it's obviously will be better tomorrow. Hopefully we'll wake up tomorrow. Uh, every new day is basically an all-time high for humanity, right? And there is just so much to be thrilled about. And, um, and honestly, if you, you peel the layers back and you ask, why is it that um, what's, what's the driving force of progress and, and why we're doing so well? I mean, if you had to boil it down to one word, it would be technology, right? And I feel like today, the, the, uh, while technology is diffused uh, in, uh, incredibly well and we all have supercomputers in our pockets, uh, the sentiment for uh, like the sentiment of society as a like may, and maybe media specifically toward technology has almost soured. Maybe I'm just too close to it, but I feel like um, it is now more fashionable to criticize, nitpick, and find like phantom narratives against technology than it is to kind of embrace it. Uh, and I find that a little bit regrettable because it's uh, it's not a sign of um, I think some degree of skepticism and and, and you know criticism and and um, going through and and inspecting it through kind of a few lenses is good, but now there are just I feel like this default criticism attitude that that you know uh, from from especially large newspapers like the Guardian I, I swear to God if if we cured cancer tomorrow. It would not be a glowing headline out of the Guardian. It would be something about access inequality. It would just just completely miss the point entirely. And that has become more fashionable than just like accepting and celebrating human progress. Um, and I think it would be great if humanity took a more positive, um, of course, healthy positive, not just blindly positive, but but a uh, celebrate what we've achieved, 
like in this last century, I think it's absolutely incredible. And, and really have like a optimist uh, and, and more excited view of the future of what we're building together, because I think we're going to incredible places. And what do you think, James? What, what do you think's behind this, as you say, growing trend of skepticism, it being fashionable to be skeptical of something rather than positively embracing things? What's behind the trend? I think one, there, there are probably a few things. One is that big tech got big, I think is one, is one aspect, right? And there's always this default, uh, there's, you know, people have innate temperaments and, and among those who are more egalitarian in streak, they will be more critical of, um, call it larger and wealthier organizations, except if it's the government, that's okay. Um, so, you know, once companies get big, they, they, they basically become, they enter focus for this style of criticism. You know, 10 years ago, Facebook, um, um, Google, uh, th- th- these, even Microsoft, they were not so big. They were not trillion dollar companies, right? So they were, and they didn't have so much power. So they, they I, don't, I don't think they attracted as much attention. A, they got big and B, I mean, some real problems did start occurring on social media, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. these companies grew as fast as possible, but embraced an attitude of um, human society and human actors are, 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 um, are generally good people. Um, we're, we're, and we're generally going to assume good actors and, and good intentions. And I think around a few years ago, um, last kind of two election cycles ago, people st- figured out how to use these powerful social networks um, for malicious means. And that uh, obviously caused significant damage and, and credibility to these companies. But it also gave the press uh, some, uh, like, for the first time, like, tangible narratives to say why big tech is bad. The other side, of course, to to consider mm-hmm. is that while large tech has been growing, their business success has been completely at the detriment of the traditional business of print media and and now increasingly kind of um, TV. So I think it's impossible to say to, to it's, it would be far too naive to say that the fact that their businesses are crumbling. And every time, you know, I read an article from one of these newspapers, they're literally either asking me for donations or paywalling me or, or otherwise like struggling to kind of even be a viable entity. Like, they, they can't be feeling good. If they were in a healthier state, maybe I think they would be less bitter and, and you know, less divisive about this stuff. But I think the simultaneous factors of their business crumbling and large tech becoming essentially more influential than nation states is kind of, is kind of causing this division. And of course, that's the, on the media side. If you look at what's happening with, um, uh, you know, th- there are individuals who feel this way too. Like, uh, part of the reason they write these articles is because they're readers who want to read this narrative. And, and I think at a very macroscopic scale, the effect of technology has been to magnify, um, uh, call it uh, outcome inequality uh, for people in the world. Um, I think you could, you know, there, there's a great debate to be had about is that the natural state of things or is that an artificial induced state of things? I tend to think that it's, it's, magnifying kind of underlying realities in the world um, that were masked by kind of the prior eras of, of kind of, um, uh, I guess, you know, society and, and, and economics. Um, but that's that's a reasonable debate to be had. But I think the fact is um, technology has allowed, call it the top 10% of 
people with skills, with high leverage skills, call it the top 10% of people there to basically accumulate exponentially more wealth um, while good, honest labor, which used to earn a good, honest living has decayed because of globalization, automation, and all these other things. So that's magnified a huge gap that didn't exist 10, 20 years ago as much. Um, and naturally those who are on the wrong end of that bargain, they need a narrative to explain their outcomes because they're just, they, they, they're, you know, un, they're just simply unlucky relative to what's happening to the world. And, and um, I think it's understandable that they are kind of upset that, you know, the world is working against them in almost a secular way. I mean, yeah, there's, there's so much, there's so much stuff to unpack here. I guess from your perspective, then that positive outlook, when you look ahead, what are the things which you are sort of most excited, feeling most uh, positive about in terms of what's going to really change the world for the better? You know, I covered um, artificial intelligence when I was an analyst at ARC, and it was, uh, I think, I think, a, I think probably of the technologies that that are truly that that will truly have incredible impact over the next couple of years. I think AI, blockchains, and um, everything we're doing with, I guess, digital medicine. Thinking about like everything we did with our mRNAs, right? That that that, that converting, um, basically turning human biology into a digital problem. It's it's like I think that's these three areas are the most interesting, um, but. It's funny because AI is almost AI magnifies the trend that that you know we just talked about because it's it's mm-hmm. going to give those with uh, more capability uh, uh, higher leverage. AI is an incredible magnifier of technology, right? AI has made large tech large tech companies even larger. It's made ten billion dollar companies, a hundred billion dollar companies, a hundred billion dollar companies, um, you know, trillion dollar companies because you can now like with with any, take any social media application, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, it used to be the case that they just served you um, whatever content your friend or, or um, the people you're following posted the last time, uh, since the last time you logged into the app. So I open the app in the morning. It basically shows, you know, what you posted, what John Smith posted. You know, it just shows my, you know, 10 people what they posted. But because the internet exploded and now we follow a thousand people, um, it can't even fit that on the timeline anymore. So uh, companies basically replaced a very simple um, uh, show last content algorithm with a neural network that selects most likely to engage content. So like it's gotten to the, it's, it's getting a little frustrating because sometimes I don't even see the things that I thought I would see. I follow people and I never see their stuff because it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's selected for me with a neural network. But the benefit of this is that, well, the really interesting like thing about this is that what's actually happening is these products, which used to be like one product for everyone. If you think about cable TV or just any TV, right? Um, you know, when I watch, I don't know, uh, CNN, it's it's the same channel for everyone who watches CNN. If I listen to BBC Radio Six, it's the same program for everyone listening to Radio Six. But when I open, but when people listen, open Facebook or Twitter, it is a unique product for every user. Facebook is a product that generates six unique, that generates two billion unique versions of itself for everyone on Earth. Instagram is a product that generates one and a half billion versions of itself for, for everyone on Earth. So like it's these, and they're all powered by neural networks. So it's given this incredible scaling factor for big tech. But it doesn't. Um, 
really empower the individual in, a, in any genuine sense. It gives them more of what they want, but it doesn't give them more power and control over their lives. It almost gives them less, right? Because it's just now controlled by these black boxes. It's not like Facebook is trying to dupe you. They're just trying to literally give you what you want based on the signals you provide them. But the signals are very indirect um, and, and you have no way of expressing yourself or, or taking back any control. So um, I think Peter Thiel made this point way back when, which is that like AI is almost like a authoritarian technology. It gives more power to the power structures, um, whereas blockchain technologies are more, um, um, I guess, pro-freedom, which is to give more power to the individual. So like to contrast that, mm. for example, um, uh, you know, when Bitcoin launched, you know, Bitcoin today has made so many crypto billionaires. Ethereum has made so many crypto billionaires. And, you know, I would have some friends who might ask, it's like, gosh, I wish like they, you know, it, it didn't just, you know, I wish I gave it to the people instead of just like, it just made a few people rich. And uh, what's not so well known is that when these protocols launched, they were the most truly democratic and grassroots based ways of distributing, um, even at the time, and people didn't even know, but you know, now we know capital um, of any system. Like anyone could just mine Bitcoin at the beginning and get tons of it. Like for the cost of running a fridge, if you started in the early days, you could be a multimillionaire just, just, just you know, running it on your little computer. You don't even need specialized GPUs back then. Um, so all it took was for buy-in at the beginning. Um, and um, uh, granted, you had to kind of like, you know, no one was going to, no one knew in advance it was going to be a success. So how, so how could anyone really tell you? But for the people who participated early, it took no cost. Um, it, it, it didn't require them to be a capitalist. It required a minimum amount of labor. Uh, and really, it distributed, you know, a trillion dollars of wealth uh, to people in the world, a trillion dollars out of nothing. So, like, it's a very empowering technology. And, and, Bitcoin was the first to kind of launch and, and almost like distributed wealth with just almost like money falling out of the sky, but really money kind of spewing out of your computers. Um, but there's since then been thousands of protocols or you know, blockchains launched um, uh, in, in the world. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have, have, haven't done so well, but a lot of them have been extremely influential and genuinely useful. And I think one thing I'm trying to highlight these days is just, uh, you know, blockchains, uh, these crypto thingies, blockchains, whatever, tokens, are actually doing useful stuff uh, people may not have realized since the last round, which is like 2017. Yeah, and as you say, some of that sort of cynicism and skepticism, some of it seems to be driven by an, an almost annoyance that it's like, oh, well, these people are getting rich off some sort of game or some sort of hack or it's kind of unfair. It's like, but as you say, there, there, there's much deeper roots in this technology and the sort of, I guess, some of the philosophies behind it. I read uh, a piece that you tweeted out recently, and one of the things you said was pay attention when stuff is really early or weird. Uh, and I think you were kind of referring right to like when Bitcoin first launched. Can you talk a little bit about that? I guess it ties into what you're saying here about the very sort of early onset of this technology. Yeah, I think one of the meta lessons that you can kind of take home from the last, you know, two decades in technology is that it it pays 
to be early and it pays to be, I, well, it pays to be to, to notice things early and it pays to be an optimist. It does not pay, um, I mean, actually being, being a follower is not bad. I, like you could have bought Facebook at the IPO and you still would have done very well. So like, but still to many people at the time, that was a controversial decision. It's so obvious in hindsight, like, oh yeah, Facebook is like a blue chip tech stock and it trades at a low multiple. So of course it was going to do well. No, buying Facebook was extremely excruciating. Like in the first year, it fell a lot during the first year. So, um, but the general lesson of the last, like, I don't know, 20 years is that it pays to be an optimist around technology. Um, even if you fell into the, tr even if you were duped, um, if you were like, if you made 10 independent bets and you were duped on two of them, they were just like scams, like Theranos, um, you still would have came out way better than just being generally just being, for example, in the S&P 500, which is essentially a index of stuff that's happened in the past, right? Because it's, it's weighed by how much you're worth. Um, so being early, like, for example, Bitcoin, the crypto kind of market has gone, goes through booms and bust cycles. And, and you might have heard of it in 2013. You might have heard of it in 2017. You might have heard in 2020. They're like, these are like kind of natural um, cycles in which they did well. Um, but uh, if you had paid attention, uh, there were so many opportunities like and you could have been mining as early as you know 2012 or something but like there were so many opportunities uh for you to take a point of view and to look into it um and to you know just just chat to the people who are into it i know so many people i'm late i was so late like my friends were mining bitcoin like i didn't never mine bitcoin i just heard about it through you know chris berniski uh, we, we worked at art together he, he started you know a crypto fund after that but he was the one who got into it and he's like you know look at this bitcoin thing and at the time i took this attitude that was very uh, considered uh respectable and 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 uh i don't know correct among investors which is you should only invest in things you know and understand and you, you in generally and and of course all investing whether it's growth investing or value investing is still value investing you're um, trying to buy an asset at a price lower than its intrinsic value. And its intrinsic value is defined as the sum of all the cash flows it will produce in the future, presented in the, the terms of the present. Um, and because Bitcoin doesn't produce any cash flows, it's not a business, right? It doesn't generate revenue. It's just this like, like this digital gold thingy. Um, uh, so you couldn't really value it using, yeah. you know, the traditional CFA certified frameworks. Um, so as a result, I was like, okay, I don't understand this technology and I can't value it uh, based on everything I've been taught, taught, like this is important. This is how you become a, this is how you do adulting as an investor, right? So therefore I should stay away from it. It's so funny, but other people with different mental models came to different conclusions. So that was my initial kind of like, see, that was me, that was relatively early in today's terms, um, but it was not very optimistic in, in um, kind of outlook. But uh, what turned me around was I went on a vacation um, uh, with my parents in Sicily. I remember distinctively, I was just, thank God for, for uh, Twitter and, and uh, you know, and just broad uh, cellular coverage. Even in the hills of Sicily, I had great um, receptions. So I was just scrolling Twitter on the bus from Palermo to Catania. And it was beautiful mountains. Uh, anyone who should who definitely check out Sicily. 
But I remember seeing some tweet to the effect of, you know, things are complex. The world is a very, very chaotic place. Uh, you can't have all the information at your disposal. Don't, don't have too high of an opinion of your own opinion and judgment. Something to, it was actually much more succinct than that, but basically it was to, to encourage you to be a bit more open-minded and not think that investing can be boiled down to this methodical process and, and, um, and uh, of information analysis. And it just kind of turned me around and it gave it, it, I just basically instantly thought, you know what, um, you don't have to understand uh, something fully before you invest. It's okay to not understand. Um, taking the view of it's not, it's okay to not fully understand really liberated me. And by the, by the time I got off the bus, I decided I was going to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> that was the moment. That was the, the bus burning that paid for itself. That was in 2016. Hey there, just a brief interruption to invite you to join the Journey Further Book Club. We share bite-sized insight from the world's best business books, covering all sorts of themes which impact the way we work right now and in the future. We host exclusive events with the authors too. It's completely free to join, just head to journeyfurther.com or click the link in the show notes to sign up. Now back to James. Personally, like I feel super late to to all of this. It's like I've 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 been aware of what it is for so many years, but only in the last like few months have I started actually regularly buying some cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, but I got into a conversation with a friend on Friday who works for the Bank of England. Yep. And the the contrast between my view on what I was doing, like oh you know what I'm just going to dive in, I'm just going to start buying some crypto. I think the technology is interesting. I think the potential is is huge. Her take was the complete opposite. It was mm -hmm. like, you're fueling all sorts of criminal activity. This is wildly unregulated. Like, it's terrible. And it, the contrast between me and like you said there, I'm like, I don't know, really. I don't know all the detail. I know a, a minute level of detail, but I've decided to um, act on it. Yeah. versus probably someone who knows a lot more of the detail and has come to a completely opposite conclusion. And I think it's that that's kind of like, and it's been on my mind ever since, but I guess it kind of speaks to what we're, what we're saying. Absolutely. Um, who was it? Oh, God, great investor. Um, name's escaping me. Maybe it'll come back to me. He said, like, so many people are experts, but they're experts in past versions of the world. Um, your friend is an expert in the past version of the world, the, the version called the traditional financial system. Um, she, along with many others, were sure given an excellent education and given a great kind of career track um, to understand the way things are supposed to be done. And if the world were not changing, they would be where you want to be because they are the established order. They, they are the Illuminati in plain sight. Um, but because the world is changing, everything they know is almost like anti-knowledge right? It's like knowing the scholastic philosophy system of, of the Middle Ages. Like, yes, you are the expert in that, but that will soon be irrelevant. So, um, and, and knowledge is kind of this kind of thing that has its own gravity. If you know this, it, it, it kind of completely warps your view of how you're able to absorb contra information and, um, uh, and makes you worse at absorbing contra information. Whereas you have a beginner's mind. You don't have all the knowledge of the inner workings of the financial system and all the regulations that are in place and why they're in place. Um, 
that gives you an advantage when it comes to new things. So like, that's why I think you're able to take a, a more flexible and, and a lot of this is temperament too. You know, a lot of the best crypto investors came out of the traditional world too. And I think this has to do with temperament. You are, you know, just more fluid in temperament and you don't have all this prior knowledge that is actually baggage. So like you are able to jump in quicker, which is great. That's interesting. Yeah, where it's beneficial to have less knowledge. It's, that's quite interesting. When you when th- this this contrast between is say the traditional way of doing things, the traditional way of investing, and and where things are going when you look at, at crypto, like the volatility is something which people talk about a lot because it is it is crazy when you when you really look at it, and I think it must put a lot of people off. How do you sort of? process the sort of volatility that we see and i guess why do we see so much volatility compared to compared to other things when it comes to crypto volatility happens when stuff is early when stuff is highly liquid and when you have when you attract a lot of speculative capital um and when it's just highly i guess um unregulated it's because crypto exists in a complete parallel system to the financial traditional financial system almost completely parallel you need ways to to take your cash your fiat currency and buy you know these cryptocurrencies and that's still done through these centralized exchanges like coinbase which is listing today incredible uh, validation um but after that point it's essentially the wild wild west you can do anything you want so um I, once again, I think this is a temperament issue. It's funny, I have never thought about volatility in crypto. Like, I just, I never even think about it because um, uh, I guess by, uh, I don't know, my brain just doesn't feel like that is a stress factor. But I can certainly understand to, to other people who's different temperaments, that would be a stress factor. And I have, and I certainly know people who literally won't buy it because including, um, uh, who was it? Nassim Taleb recently, right? He basically sold out his entire Bitcoin position because he thought it was it changed its value too too much. Um, and I don't know him of all persons should understand this stuff. But to me, a, a if you play the long game, you care less about the volatility in the short term. You don't care zero, but you care less. Um, B by temperament, you may just have higher kind of um, tolerance for this kind of stuff. Uh, but overall, I would say that. I mean, I could tell you to take a long-term view, but I don't know if that will actually psychologically help you, you know, because it's it's giving advice is useless because like it's only it only runs it's software that it works for your brain, but it doesn't port to someone else's brain. So it's almost kind of useless, but people give advice anyways. It's a great industry. But um, I don't know. I think a great product would be if someone would lock your crypto uh, assets away for X years and buy a smart contract and you can't sell it. I think illiquidity is actually one of the best features of the venture capital industry is that it kind of just takes you out of the day to day. What's it worth? What's it trading at? And that actually helps you stay in the market and actually be the guy who's like, oh, I bought early and I still hold it. Like if you bought Amazon in 90, what was it? Seven, eight on the IPO. um, The chance that you still hold that stock today is practically zero (laughs) percent. Right. Because. It's gone through so many just gyrations and, and crash after 2000 and, and, you know, narrative problems. And every day it gives you a reason to sell. And you have to have like such iron conviction to hold it through all these cycles. Um, but if it's illiquid, you just don't think about it because you don't have the choice. So um, I think if you're someone who, um, uh, who find that who, who would otherwise be so open to it, 
and, and want to hold it, but just find the day-to-day too, too intolerable. It's so, so funny. Masayoshi-san, one of the greatest and highest risk-tolerating investors of all time, you know, um, SoftBank. He, he was at one point in 2000 richer than Bill Gates because of how much SoftBank was worth. And then, you know, got evaporated. Um, but he literally bought Bitcoin on yeah. the advice of Fortress uh, and and he couldn't tolerate the volatility. He said, I kept checking the price every day and I got fed up with it. So I sold it all. He sold, he literally bought the top and sold the bottom um, on, in the last cycle. But, but yeah, this is, I agree, this is a real problem. But if you can find some way to, to lock it up for yourself, for example, when you buy Bitcoin, you're given a private key. That's what gives you the unique access to your tokens. Um, if you can just take that key, um, uh, and put it in a safety deposit box or break it in half and uh, give it to two friends you trust uh, and, and say, do not, basically you, you, you lock it up for you. Do not give this back to me, no matter how hard I scream and, and, and shout and, and, and moan uh, for five years. Like that would be one way to construct a mechanism for you to, to, to just take it out of your discipline. <laughs> but this, I think this shows so strongly that like investing is at least 50% psychological and for some asset classes, maybe 80% psychological. It's, it's definitely that, that, that case. Yeah. Interesting. You obviously mentioned then the, 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 the news today about a Coinbase listing, and I guess it's a, it's a kind of a proof point, a small, but significant proof point, I guess, that change is happening. I guess, what do you see looking forwards to be the, the, the next major sort of proof points or the next major hurdles to over, to be overcome? for crypto to be a much more accepted part of the world? What do you see as those hurdles or those milestones? I think we still need a product that can reach, call it Facebook level penetration. Right now, there's no crypto product that you know someone is using, like in our immediate friends and family networks, right? Normal people are not using crypto, it's still the problem. And since the last kind of bull market in 2017, which generated a ton of capital through these um, ICOs, basically like token launches, um, there's been incredible amount of just human capital and monetary capital trying to help crypto find its product market fit for every for a genuine mainstream use case. And we didn't and 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 we we never had it, I would say, until very recently. um, I'm just finishing up a piece, a newsletter piece called like five genuinely useful things that crypto can now do in 2021 um, implied that it couldn't do before. And uh, I think basically two new, two broad categories have emerged that have now engaged in call it normal people who are not interested in being a crypto guy, right, to actually use this. The first is NFTs, which kind of just basically made it possible to buy scarce digital goods. We could there was just no such category before. You had scarce, non-scarce, digital analog. In this two by two matrix, scarce digital was not a category that existed before. Um, Bitcoin was the first to fill that box, like you know. But it was also just a purely symbolic thing. It was this, you know, just Satoshi. Um, so people couldn't, you know, it's not. If you believe it, it works. If you don't, it's just a random number you have in your random wallet. But NFTs, you could actually exchange, you know, dollars you earned for. Um, creations that somebody made and it's provably scarce and provably genuine. So that's the first and like NBA top shots, just video clips, like there's already an established TAM of people into basketball 
an already TAM of people established into collecting baseball cards. And now you can do that digitally. So that just like that's the first natural use case that did not require reading essays and listening to podcasts. It was just like, yes, take my money, please. I want it. So that's the first category. Um, second one is kind of just what's broadly called DeFi or decentralized finance, which is basically you can do so many of the core functions that your natural bank that your bank provides um, on top of these blockchain protocols. Um, the most obvious being just borrowing and lending. Uh, the fact that you can do that now, and I can kind of walk you through my experience of, of trying those things over the last month uh, without interacting with the bank is incredible. And your friend at Bank of England should be you should ask her about that. Yeah. Yeah, can I, can let, I think let's dive into both of these two two themes then. I guess starting with NFTs, again, it's like a, a, a mind-boggling thing to try and get your head around at first. But then yeah. once you do understand, and I think that, that, that explaining it in that two-by-two two matrix, which you just talked about, it's kind of like, yeah, this does make complete sense. I guess what, what, what's your, yeah, what's your sort of best layman's terms explanation of, of, of NFTs and why they're going to become so such an important thing? Yeah, sure. Um, imagine you're a, it's the, the best way to think about NFTs is to, is to put yourself in the shoes of a creator, of a, you know, artist. Just imagine you're a photographer, you know, you're a reasonably well-known photographer uh, and currently your business is, you, you take a beautiful picture of, you know, of, of you know, Yosemite or the Alps, you issue a hundred prints. Uh, they're all worth a thousand dollars each. Uh, you price them a thousand dollars each. You put it on your, your web store and you already have a reasonable reputation. So people buy it off you and you ship it to them for a thousand dollars. That's the traditional business, but this is a analog business because you're issuing, you know, physical goods and then you go to the post office and you ship it. Um, now we know that uh, the digital economy is the fastest growing part, right? So like people are selling digital goods. So how can you as a photographer sell digital goods? Uh, if this, if we're having this conversation prior to 2017, uh, the answer is you can't. There's nothing the internet can do for this photographer other than provide a web end front, like a, a web store front end that, that you know, uh, kind of just gives presence. If you try to sell a digital copy of this photograph, how much can you sell it for? The answer is zero. Because why? Because the reason why it sells for zero is because literally, you know, it's this joke in the NFT world, right click and save. Anyone can right click and save. And then this file has no um, protected, has no providence value. Like, let's say I'm this photographer, I upload this file on my yeah. website. Uh, and, and I say, you can buy a digital version of this file, 10 megapixel version for, uh, you know, uh, $1,000. Um, the one person buys it and uh, and and uh, and somehow it gets leaked on a torrent or something. There is no, all the files are exactly the same. There's literally no difference from the person who paid a thousand dollars from the person who just like kind of found in some corner of the internet. You cannot prove you bought it. It's because, because part of the wonderful thing about digital is that cost of replication is free. So there are infinity copies and anything that has infinity copies have zero value. Whereas the, you know, the analog prints are, finite so they have value so basically from the photographer's perspective there's no uh, value capture mechanism on the internet uh, all you can do is sell online and ship physical bits nfts um the first kind of core standard for nfts were invented on the ethereum blockchain it's called erc 70, 721 token that came out in 2017 and it was basically a way 
of generating a little packet of code um, on top of the Ethereum blockchain, which is distributed across tens of thousands of computers across the world, that was provably scarce, so that these tokens um, could not be replicated uh, because it was protected by cryptography. And if I and th these were non-fungible in the sense that each are different than the other. Uh, one Bitcoin is the same as any other Bitcoin. They're interchangeable, they're identical, they're fungible. Um, but for things like content, they're actually, by definition, non-fungible, right? Because they're, they're uh, all different. So anyway, the core aspect is you can now create a, a digital bit that is provably unique and provably scarce. And th th this packet of code, the most important thing about this packet of code is it has a, it has a little signature that says where it came from. So if now let's imagine I'm this artist, the year is 2021, I hear about NFTs because I read about it. I'm like, cool, let me try this stuff. I can now take the same photograph. Well, let's say I took a new photograph. This is my latest work. I'm not even going to do analog prints. I'm just going to try this NFT business. Um, I'm going to uh, basically scan this photograph or it's digital anyway now, right? I have this photo, it's original high resolution photo, and I mint an NFT. And what it does is it creates a unique signature for this NFT. And just like in my old business, I'm going to make 100 copies. Um, so you make, you, you, you basically, on these platforms, and these are just all drop down, click and, click and drop platforms now, you can say, I will make 100 units of this, um, of this piece of artwork. And it doesn't create 100 copies of the, fi of the JPEG. It actually creates 100 units of these um, uh, ERC-721 tokens, so these little code snippets or smart contracts on, on Ethereum. But, uh, and then you go, of course, you can go on a, a website like Foundation or Nifty Gateway to, to sell uh, your artwork. Now you price it at $1,000, just the same thing, right? And people will buy it now for $1,000. Why? Because they know, they provably know that there are only um, 100 of these tokens. And you cannot, you can copy the JPEGs because the JPEGs are actually unprotected. It's just like sitting on Dropbox or something, right? You can copy the JPEGs, but you can't copy the tokens because the tokens doesn't live on the internet. It lives on the Ethereum blockchain. And the Ethereum blockchain provides scarcity assurance and protection from tampering. So that assurance basically allows you to make a digital good that is scarce. Um, that sounds in a way backward because it's like, hey, a JPEG is like digital stuff is supposed to be free and infinite. Why would you like walk backwards and make something that has more fluidity, more, more um, I don't know, rigid. The benefit is just in the incentive structures and in how human psychology works. We will buy something that's scarce, but we will not buy something that's, that's called infinitely abundant. So it actually creates an opportunity and creates a real business for an, a livelihood for the creator. Um, and it allows a, a collector side kind of uh, ecosystem to develop at the same time. So actually benefits both sides. The important thing is no one is coerced to use this technology. So if you think this is a bunch of nonsense, you don't have to participate. Like, but I think golf is nonsense. I don't play golf, right? But so, but for the people who do like it, it's like the artist now has a way of making a living on the internet, which, you know, are, you, are we going to say that's bad? And collectors now can pay, like pay patronage to the artist. Are we going to say that's bad? Like it is literally a win-win situation. And the only way you can screw it up is by like nitpicking and then finding some 
nonsense environmental narrative and then making the focus of that of your column and printing it in the Guardian. That is literally the only way you can screw it up. And of course, that's the angle that some people choose to take. I mean, it's, it's like the music industry is, is a really interesting example in this as well. And for so many years, you've read so much about, oh, well, I've had a million streams on Spotify, but each stream only pays a fraction, fraction of a penny or a cent. And wh- where do you think the development with NFTs will leave the sort of the, I guess, the, the, the established players in the distribution of this digital content, be it a record label or otherwise? Where does it go for, for them? I think, you know, if you look at what the internet has done for media in general, um, the internet has made certain live livelihoods much better or much worse for people working in content, whether it's writing or um, music or uh, digital media, like in the form of images and video. Um, I'd say for a lot of, for, for anyone who had an existing reputation or existing business model, it's made it worse. Like the music industry collapsed after the internet came out, right? First through pirating, then through streaming. iTunes in the middle made economics worse, not better. Um, and only now is the kind of economies of scale of streaming making up for that loss of revenue. So basically artists, like if you look at a musician, their livelihood went from, you know, I'm going to sign a good deal with Sony. Uh, I'm going to try to get promoted on MTV. I'm going to sell like a million records. And that would be an amazing outcome for me financially to I can't make much money off Spotify unless I'm Ariana Grande. Um, but generally, it's like just a trickle of revenue. So the only way I can make up for it is to tour incessantly. And, and you know, that's brutal. So what NFTs, like a very simple way to think about it is NFTs um, add a new monetization um, pathway or, or just a, a new way for them to earn a living, to monetize their work, to, to generate revenue from their work. Because, you know, I love music. I, I follow some, you know, kind of not super mainstream artists. And I can tell they're not making much money. Like they're programming on the side. That, no, they're, they're making music on the side. Their main job is a programmer or, or something else, right? Um, because, you know, they have 10,000 listeners on Spotify. That does not pay for, for, uh, for a living. And, you know, one artist was moved. His, his album was so good that, like, I thought for the amount of listeners, I was afraid he was not going to make more because I felt like I was only the one of 6,000 people listening to his stuff. So one day I just said, dude, I love your stuff. Um, can I, uh, do you have a Patreon? Is there anyone? I couldn't, I was trying to pay him, but he had no mechanism to receive. And yeah, in the yeah. end, he sent me his, you know, PayPal and I sent him you know, a lump sum and I said, hey, I really appreciate it. Um, but that's like, that's like me acting Extremely, right? Me acting extremely aggressive out of the blue. That's not a dependable thing. So, okay, let's imagine you are a musician. Prior to NFTs, what is on your menu of, of call it revenue generation? What's on your menu is um, I will sell albums, um, which almost no one buys now because digital albums are not really just a big seller. I can get streams of Spotify. If you're not over, you know, a million or or whatever subs on Spotify, you're not making reasonable money. I can tour, uh, but that's brutal. And it's like, I have to do it over and over and over again. Um, at the tour, I can sell merch. I can sell some t-shirts and online. I can sell some t-shirts. Your monetization engine is some very poor unit economics from, from digital albums, uh, even worse with streaming on Spotify, uh, break your back and, and all your band members and go tour. And, and you have to just, those are one-offs. 
um, and you you want to run a web store with some twenty dollar merch like there's it's not a good that's why it's not a good livelihood that's why they're all complaining right um, NFTs add yeah. a complete new thing on the menu which is you know um, Chris Dixon first wrote about this but I'm so like I feel so frustrated because I came up with the same idea but I didn't write it out uh, at, at the same at, at before he published <laughs> so he get he gets full credit. But essentially, NFTs allow you to monetize at every price point um, versus your fans' level of enthusiasm and dedication. Let's say for every band member, uh, let's say for every musician, there are 10 super fans in the world, right? Um, these are by super fans. You, you, these are people who will just buy your stuff blind and and have, will pay happily almost any price. So like if I'm patronizing this same musician and he had NFTs available, like let's say he had a one of one NFT priced at $10,000. Um, maybe it's like a unique track. Maybe it's a poster. Maybe it's like, who knows what it is, but it, this is like his stuff for like, if you really love my work, here's a $10,000 one of one um, at you know $250. I have a uh, uh, hundred copies of something else at $50. I have this really neat, like, I don't know, uh, cover art or something that, that anyone can get. Uh, and then, you know, at $20, you can buy a bunch of stuff. Like people who want to pay $20 now have a way, if maybe they don't want merch, like, you know, nobody plays actually vinyl. They just they just put it in their like, you know, shelf, right? Now they can pay for that and, and you can monetize for that, but they can, they can sell a unit of a good that's $10,000 that they could never sell before because they had nothing they could offer that would be $10,000 before. Because they, they couldn't sell a physical thing for $10,000. Such a thing doesn't exist. And a digital thing couldn't be scarce, so it could never price that way. But now if you can make it scarce, you can actually give really high-end, call it, or customized offerings to your super fans. And that basically allows you to capture revenue along a curve. Um, and all of a sudden, um, you can monetize. At, at You can like actually get fairly, not like even monetize, but actually get fair reflection of your work uh, in terms of revenue backwards, because now the people who want it, like me, who want to throw money at you, um, can actually throw money at you and get something back. And we both feel great about it. Um, and the best part is this whole system yeah. exists outside of the control of the existing power hierarchy. You do not need to pay labels. You do not need to pay like marketing dollars. Like you can literally mint this stuff very cheaply online. Uh, on Rarible, um, and then you're completely in control of your own fate, right? And no one is, like, other than the NFT platforms, which take a very modest cut, uh, you are not surrendering your economics and your distribution. You're actually taking all that back for the first time, and you have a direct relationship with your fans, uh, you know, through Instagram or Twitter. And that's, like, I think that is so good for, for creators and musicians. That's the thing. And then and this value exchange is happening without just putting more stuff into the world, be it T-shirts, be it records and, and, and all of that and all of that thing. It's simplifying it so much. Yeah. And it's so much better to be a fan because you can actually collect, you know, all of a sudden there is more stuff you can do and to engage with the with the with the musician. Because right now it's just, you know, I, I, I want to there's I have greater desire to patronize them than they are able to serve with what they have, which is just t-shirts and mugs, right? Now they have something to give. Mm. There, there was something I, I was listening to on a, another podcast recently, which I hope you might be able to help me help me understand. I think it's related to NFTs. 
And I think it was talking about property as an example. Obviously, like property prices in, in London and from New York are just astronomical. It's becoming this thing which is almost impossible for the vast majority of people to ever have an, to ever own. Um, but I think this was kind of suggesting this this technology, this framework, is what you're saying is it actually could potentially democratize assets like that. And essentially, well, you could now buy a very small part of something which you would never be able to afford the whole of. Is that, am I understanding that in the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Fractional ownership has been an idea for a long time and people have people have done this prior to NFTs. Like um, if you buy fine art and it's worth $10 million, not everyone, like, you know, a few people can buy the whole thing, but uh, certain people just want exposure to, uh, to want to invest fractionally in that piece of art. Um, this is of course taking out the utility. This is not like, you would never hang this because you're only owning a fraction of it. But yeah, companies have kind of set up like controlled structures to help fractional ownership. They basically run a fund and you're buying shares of the fund. But now with NFTs, that, that's no longer a proprietary structure you have to set up with humans in the loop and management and paperwork. Um, it just becomes entirely natural. So the Beeple painting that sold for um, $69 million um, is kind of like, that's one single unit. Um, but the same guys who bought that bought the original Beeple one of ones that dropped on Nifty Gateway last year. And those were like a collection of like highly desirable early Beeple releases. They actually had to pull a lot of money to, to buy the whole collection. Uh, what they did was they took that whole collection, they bundled it together, um, and they reissued it as a fractionalized token called a B20 token. So like, you know, individually, no, no normal civilian can afford any of those one of ones, um, but they pulled money together and bought, bought all of them. And they basically reissued it as much smaller units of fractionalized shares. Uh, and then basically anyone with, oh, okay. with can buy the B20 tokens. Uh, the problem right now with this is if you fractionalize an asset and then issue it again under U.S. security laws, that becomes, I think, a security. And, and if you, you basically have to. You, you are un, you're now regulated and, and you, you can't do that basically okay. you do a bunch of work. Uh, so I think these guys did it out of Singapore. So now it's kind of this global um, landscape of competition uh, to see wh whoever has the most facilitating kind of policies around this. Okay, interesting. And I guess that, that, that maybe ties in the thought around regulation to, to the other kind of big theme you mentioned about DeFi. I guess maybe in, in layman's terms to begin with, like what is DeFi? What 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 should we be understanding DeFi to 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 mean, and and what's its significance? DeFi means decentralized finance, and let's just talk about what you can do with it because you know that will make everything clear. With a bank, you can deposit money, and it will give you interest, or you can give them some collateral, and they will lend you money. That's like the core nuts and bolts business of a bank. DeFi is doing those two functions and more on a blockchain. So today, if you have just dollars, pounds, euros, how much interest can you get out of that at a bank? Very. I mean, I get no interest on any money I have in my bank. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. right? If you take those dollars, any currency, and you deposit into a DeFi savings account today, um, you can get 20% interest on flat national currency. Like the key thing here is you're not messing with Bitcoin, Ethereum. You're not making any speculation about prices of those things. This is using fiat currency. So what happens is you, for example, I'm in the U.S. I take you know thousand dollars U.S. U.S. dollars. Um, I transfer it to to Coinbase. Still a thousand dollars. 
Coinbase lets me buy this thing called a stable coin, which is a stabilized cryptocurrency pegged to a traditional currency, in this case, a stable coin of US dollars. Their one preferred one is called USDC. So I take $1,000 and I convert it to 1,000 USDC. Um, still $1,000, no fees has happened. Now, once it's converted to USDC, what is a USDC? A USDC is a token on top of the Ethereum blockchain. It's an ERC-20 token. Um, the crypto protocols are uh, now basically will take my USDC and offer interest rates on deposits of this money. So I can take the $1,000 in USDC, deposit in something like a Compound or Aave or you know, Yearn. These are all like, like online uh, blockchain-based banks, if you will. And today's rate is like anywhere between 7 to 20%. Um, so call it 10%, just, just to be lazy. Uh, you can get 10% on top of just plain cash. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. That is crazy. Like, you did, require, you did not require Bitcoin to go up. You did not require Ethereum to go up. You did not have to speculate on ICO. It's just, you know, straight cash into equivalent stablecoin deposited away. Now, what's, what's different about this versus like a term deposit? A, there is no term. So it's a complete, like, you can take it in, take it out anytime you would like. B, it's variable interest rate. Right now, it's 10%, call it. At some point, it was very low. It was like 1%. Um, at some point, it's 20%. So it's not a fixed APR um, term deposit. And C, of course, the risk profile is completely different, much higher. Um, this is like most deposit accounts are federally insured. So, you know, a bunch of gangsters go to the bank, steal all your money. You're not going to lose all your money. Um, so it has very high security uh, standards. If the bank fucks up, it's it's still gonna you know give make sure your money is, is yours. Uh, if you deposit stable coins into a um, into a smart contract and for whatever reason it gets evaporated, you know some hacker, there's code bugs, any reason that that it, things go south, it's gone. It's not uh, there's no number to call. There's no insurance agency. There are actually insurance agencies, but there are none of them. Um, but your, your, the, the risk profile is significantly higher. So I was joking on Twitter. It's like these online um, crypto lending protocols, if you were to rate them as bonds, you know, A, B, uh, junk, like where would you even rate them as bonds? And, uh, you know, I got all kinds of different answers. But generally, you should consider this as asset you may completely lose. But once again, crypto is putting something on the menu. Previously, even if you were risky in temperament, you had no way of getting more returns on your savings. But today, if you're risk pro-risk in temperament, you can take your $1,000, turn it to stable coins, deposit it on the online protocol, and um, you know, if things go well, then you earn 10%, 20%. Like, you can do that today. That's so interesting. One of the other sort of use cases I, I, was, um, I was reading about recently was about the insurance industry and how, how sort of DeFi as a concept could radically change that. I always think of insurance, like no one enjoys like, buying an insurance policy on anything you never feel like you're getting good value if you ever actually do have to claim it's probably going to take you hours of your time it's probably going to take you weeks or months to get any money back um what what do you see as the the impact which which sort of decentralized technologies will have on that industry i think it's a bit trickier with insurance because insurance has to deal with real world outcomes and the second you have to deal with real world outcomes, it's not as verifiable. It's not like a digital um, piece of information you can just work with. The core thing that makes the whole blockchain system work is that the state, uh, the, 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 
the inputs required are all digital inputs. So they're just like states on the blockchain. So they can effectively, you're just sending an API call and saying, what is the value of this? And, and you know, if, if the number is higher or lower, you just reflect the state. But with the insurance, you're literally like debating real world minutia, like was this car dented? Was there a hurricane? How much percentage of your roof did, you, did was blown off? Like how much is the cost to repair that? Like if there's too much real world like data. And the second there's, once that happens, blockchains just lose value like precipitously because they can't verify any of this information. The whole essence of blockchain is to be trustless and meaning that you don't need the, um, you don't need like the humans in the loop to, to make it work. And insurance is a thing that requires really high kind of humans in the loop. Um, but like another use case is the kind of counterpart to, to, um, to lending and getting an interest, which is just borrowing. Borrowing is another thing that you can do um, in certain cases with very little human in the loop. So like, like, let's say, you know, a certain person, you know, done reasonably well, has a house, has a car, bought some crypto early, and it's worth, call it 100K right now. Let's say this person has 100K in, in, um, in crypto, right? And um, let's say this person needs just need some lump sum cash for whatever reason. Maybe there's a medical expense. Maybe, maybe it wants to start a business. But you know, I I, I need call it thirty thousand dollars to to start a business. Um, what what is what is he supposed to do? He could sell his Bitcoin. He could you know um, you know just just sell and then and then use the money to to start it. But there are probably good reasons he doesn't want to. Maybe he really believes in crypto and and thinks it's going to go up. Maybe uh, selling it will incur large capital gains taxes, and maybe you don't want to pay your taxes. Like you don't want to realize those taxes. So um, previously, last round, last time round, the only option was to was to sell your crypto to use your crypto. Now DeFi, decentralized finance, is mature to the point where you can borrow against your, what you own. So if you have 100k in Bitcoin today, you can literally deposit that into a vault and borrow thirty thousand dollars out of that. Um, for you know three to four percent interest rate, uh, and you can do this in like five minutes, um, and and it's just incredible because now you're it is literally a machine that prints out. It's like there's literally no human on the other side. Imagine you borrowing thirty thousand dollars from a bank and what you have to go through. You know, you go to the bank, you set up a time with a bank manager, you fill out a bunch of paperwork, and just imagine that. I did this with crypto recently using the, you know, the oldest system in the book with MakerDAO. Uh, you literally send them address with your crypto assets. In this case, I use Ethereum. Um, it takes your Ethereum and locks it in a vault, right? They basically imagine this cloud vault. And then it says, okay, we got your collateral. Yeah. Um, how much cash do you want us to spit, spit out at you? <laughs> and I pick a number, which is a fraction of what I put in and bang, it's like, Here's three thousand dollars in cash. Uh, it's once again stablecoin. US. It's in this case, it's a stablecoin called Dai. Uh, and then you transfer the Dai to, to, to Coinbase, and magically three thousand dollars appear in your in your um, banking account. And you did not sell your crypto at all. So you still have the same amount of crypto, um, but it's collateralized in a in a smart wallet that in a smart contract that that no one controls except software. Uh, and now you have you have money to to do whatever you want, like. The, the, the most magical part is that I did not have to provide any personal information, not even an email, never mind social security number, address, credit history. I didn't even have to provide an email. It's, it's, it's that trustless and that smooth.
Yeah, James, I'm learning so much here. And I'm, I'm sure this is hopefully opening some people's minds to, to the sort of power of, of these technologies. As always, we, we could speak forever, but I'm, I'm conscious of time. So I've just got three, three final questions to, to ask you. Firstly, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? So many things. I think if you don't have a lot of answers to this one, you, um, you're not really updating your own mind quickly enough. Uh, I mean, I used to believe you have to understand something well before investing it. I don't believe in that anymore. I think it's almost better to kind of um, invest and then understand. Of course, when you do this, you should start with small amounts. Um, I used to believe that the key to kind of solving the human condition, changing people's minds, uh, was through sound, uh, logical arguments and, and uh, data. I totally don't believe in that now. I think people make up their decisions um, uh, using their feelings first and then find a bunch of data to justify it. Um, so I don't argue with people as much anymore. Uh, the first thing that I do now when I engage with people on points of disagreement, before I even decide to, to say anything back, the first question now I ask is, is this person uh, a capable, is this person's mind programmable at this moment in time? And uh, if the answer is no, I just, even if they say something completely nonsense, like the earth is flat, I don't even engage with that conversation. Um, uh, but it's important to kind of, uh, and, and I say moment in time because people kind of uh, reach different stages of readiness. Someone who is completely kind of wrong on an issue and non-programmable on an issue may over time due to a life event uh, become programmable. That is the point to engage with people. So it's like before you engage and argue with people, decide, assess first whether it's they're programmable or not. If they're non-programmable, move on. You got better things to do with your life. So like I don't know. Those are the two things on top of mind. That's super interesting. Um, secondly, if if this wasn't your mission, I guess trying to get people to embrace the the positive potential of so much of this technology rather than do the nitpicking and the cynical nitpicking and skepticism uh, what would be what what would you be focusing your 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 time and your brain power on i think there were uh i just have a complete separate track of my life a track of my life which is i just love uh food uh, deeply and for a for a very long time it's probably i still feel like eventually i'll end up with a in a with a food business or something or some something like that so, um, you know, my first love is, is Neapolitan pizza. And uh, I feel like perfect retirement project would be just to, to run a, uh, a precariously break even pizzeria business where it's just just like the, the joy is just in making the pies uh, one after the other and tending the oven. I feel like every time I've done that, it's just been nice. the most blissful Zen state. Uh, and I can see why, you know, people would choose that over any amount of money. I think that would be a that, that would be a great parallel thing to do. And, and hopefully I'll get to do that at some point. Nice. Um, and finally, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, what would it be? You know, for the longest time, I didn't do fiction. And, um, but I love, like, I, I, I love truly compelling visions of how uh, the future can evolve. So science fiction is always something that, that appealed to me, but I never found the traditional canon to be engaging for me personally. I tried reading and I read some of the, you know, all the classics, Neuromancer, Snow Crash, and um, the Foundation series. A lot of it didn't didn't do much for me um, until I read the Three Body Problem uh, series, uh, trilogy officially, quadrilogy unofficially. But um, I would say the Three Body Problem trilogy is the most 
large scale and truly thought provoking science fiction ever done. And um, I think the premise is also just so like attractive because normally like, uh, you know, minor spoilers, but normally when we get an alien invasion story, it's like Independence Day. It's like, oh shit, they're already here. What do we do now? Let's just launch our jet fighters and hope for the best. A three-body problem, hmm. um, we actually do long-distance communication and accidentally reveal our positions, and and then we see they come. Like they're like, oh, the humans are there. Let's go get their get their blue planet, and we have I think two hundred years to respond. So the setup is we aliens are coming, but we have two hundred years to prepare. What are you going to do? And that is so much more compelling. Implausible as a scenario, then the aliens are to here, in which case, you know, we have no chance. So, like, how society on global <laughs> scale across all the countries respond to a 200 year existential crisis, I think is just fabulous. It's a bit hard to get through the beginning, but like, anyone who gets through the second book declares it to be like all time favorite. Wow. No, that sounds like a great recommendation. Um, James, um, thank you so much for taking the time. I think that's packed full of insights so many interesting interesting thoughts there for people to take away so uh yes thank you really appreciate it thank you nathan it's been great chatting to you i'm, I'm so glad you're doing this thank you for listening to the very end i hope you enjoyed that if you did please leave a review in your podcast app that will help more people discover the episode as ever i would love to hear your thoughts and feedback you can get in touch via podcast at journeyfurther.com and of course please do follow james on twitter and subscribe to his newsletter to see what he does next links to those in the show notes and i'll see you next week <laughs>